0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear Other People with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. In this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win hundred bucks, cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well. Always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at Stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my god.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's
2: really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing just
0: one person at just one time right (laughs) Right. okay everybody here we go again this is it this is other people this is you on planet earth this is me inside of your telephone thank you for being here thanks for listening thank you for focusing on this my name is brad listy i'm in los angeles it's nice to be with you uh so what's going on earlier today uh, i was out walking taking a walk i was wearing headphones which is uh fairly common in this day and age. Lots of us do this. It's nice to listen to uh, music or perhaps a podcast as you move about your environment, especially if there's lots of noise, like ambient noise, traffic noise. So anyway, I was walking. It was a beautiful day, uh, beautiful blue skies, sun was shining, palm trees, the uh, hills were alive And uh, there were police helicopters and, of course, the incredible traffic. And I was listening to an audio book by David Lynch as I was walking, the uh, film director. You know who I'm talking about, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, uh, that David Lynch. So he wrote a book. uh, He published a book a few years ago called Catching the Big Fish, which is about uh, meditation and consciousness and creativity. Like David Lynch's particular approach to making art. And living his life and uh, it's out there in uh, print of course just like any book but to be honest I think this is one of the rare occasions where the audiobook experience is far superior to the print experience because uh, David Lynch himself narrates the audiobook and he has a very good voice it's like a very interesting somewhat hypnotic voice And so uh, I'm listening to this And it's uh, putting me into kind of an introspective Contemplative mood And as I'm walking I'm noticing that there are uh, An unusual number of pedestrians on the sidewalk On this particular stretch of Los Angeles sidewalk And the other thing that I notice is that Almost all of them are wearing headphones And uh, I had headphones on And so I get to this particular section of the audiobook And it's, it's kind of a strange section near the beginning and you know David Lynch is narrating and his voice is like you know uh well you know what I'll play uh just a a brief excerpt of it so you can get a sense of what I'm talking about uh like what it was actually like for me as I was walking around having these experiences so uh here it is this is an excerpt from Catching the Big Fish which uh, incidentally is available now from Penguin Audio Unabridged so here's David Lynch
1: I felt a sense of depression and anger. I took out this anger on my first wife. After I had been meditating for about two weeks, she came to me and said, What's going on? I was quiet for a moment, but finally I said, What do you mean? And she said, This anger, where did it go? And I hadn't even realized that it had lifted. I call that depression and anger the suffocating rubber clown suit of negativity. It's suffocating and that rubber stinks. But once you start meditating and diving within, the clown suit starts to dissolve. You finally realize how putrid was the stink when it starts to go. Then when it dissolves, you have freedom.
0: Okay, so anyway, that's what I was listening to as I'm walking around, seeing all these other pedestrians with headphones on. And it occurs to me, as this is happening, that these people have no idea what I'm listening to. Like, uh, you know, I look pretty normal. I'm walking normally. I'm dressed uh, relatively inconspicuously. And it just occurred to me suddenly that these people had no idea that I was listening to David Lynch talk about a suffocating rubber clown suit. And furthermore, I had no idea what they were listening to. Like, you know, you assume that people are listening to music, right? And, And maybe they are. But there's also a chance that they could be listening to... Uh, somebody talking about a suffocating rubber clown suit. They could be listening to just you know to just about anything. For all you know, they could be listening to uh, hate speech or uh, like a recording of monkeys having sex. Or <laughs> you know you would never know. That's my point. And so it just got me thinking. You know, like what are people listening to? All these people out there in the world wearing their headphones. Uh, is it possible that my assumptions are incorrect, and that maybe what people are listening to is a lot stranger than I had previously imagined?
1: The suffocating rubber clown suit of negativity
0: maybe it's not pop music maybe it is you know maybe it's something else or maybe uh, I'm just you know a lot stranger than most people imagine. So, anyhow, I, I continued walking as I was entertaining these thoughts, and uh, I, I wound up on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, suddenly, there were fire trucks and uh, ambulances headed in my direction, in mass, one after the other. Sirens blaring. It was clearly an emergency situation. And, you know, there must have been like 10 emergency vehicles in, in a span of five minutes. So, it was pretty unusual. And I'm walking and I'm listening to David Lynch, and one by one fire truck after ambulance after fire truck is coming my way at a high rate
1: of speed, and it feels dangerous It feels ominous.: The suffocating rubber clown suit of negativity
0: you know like something terrible has happened. It felt kind of like I, you know it was like a, I was in a David Lynch movie perhaps. Like a, like a clown in a rubber clown suit uh, could emerge from the bushes at any moment in a state of homicidal fury. And uh, it turned out that it was actually, I think, an apartment fire over on Crescent Heights. Like an old apartment building called the Granville. That's what I'm reading online. I guess a lot of celebrities have lived in this building over the years. Like Marilyn Monroe. And uh, Mickey Rourke. And now, apparently, uh, a young starlet named Ashley Green. Who uh, was in the Twilight movies. So, fortunately nobody was killed. As far as I know. But, I just read online that uh, Ashley Green's dog uh, died. Or one of her dogs died. So... I hope that's not true. The news the news is still coming in. It's still preliminary, but that's what that's what I just read. So anyhow, uh that was today. Suffocating rubber clown suits, headphones, sunshine, emergency vehicles, etc. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Amber Dermont. Very pleased to have her here on the program. Her debut novel, The Starboard Sea, uh, was published to great critical acclaim. It was a New York Times bestseller, and so on. And now she has a new story collection out called Damage Control. Both books are available from St. Martin's. They're both excellent. She's a terrific writer. So let's get to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Amber Dermont.
2: So I am in I am Decatur, Georgia, which is a a city sort of within the city of Atlanta, and um, it's actually it's funny because it's home to like the the largest independent book fair in the country. Um, It's run by this man named Darren. Wang, who um is really just sort of this great impresario. He was he was the last person to ever interview James Dickey. Um and uh, there are all these writers in Decatur, uh, the poet laureate, Natasha Trethewey, uh Kevin Young, brilliant poet, and uh Jericho Brown, um also like a phenomenal uh, genius poet, and they all teach at Emory. And I teach at a small women's college called Agnes Scott, but sort of like you know, the, I always hate it when people are like, it's the it's the Wellesley of the South, but it's sort of, you know, that kind of, um, you know, very uh, smart and engaged uh, women who often come specifically for creative writing because has this whole, the, the, the school, um, when Robert Frost used to drive down to Florida, he would stop here for like a month. And, uh, yeah,
0: because it's he, a, because he, it's an all-women's college.
2: <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's this there's this statue of him uh, on the on the grounds of the college, and he's sitting on a bench, and he's got his arms sort of around the the bench, and you know, so people like take pictures of themselves. It's it's sort of sort of a little creepy to me, but um, yeah. So it's I'm in Decatur, and I'm, I'm um, which is like about an hour and a half from Milledgeville, um, where you know uh, Flannery O'Connor's Andalusia, where her farm is, and so it's always fun. Like people come to visit to take them out there, which is which is really funny because the farm is right by a Walmart. So it's this very strange. I don't. I wonder what she would think of that. But uh, I uh, I have like in my car I have these these these. Uh, stones and and pine cones that I stole from from there. So that's so nice kind wait, of is
0: it a is it a museum? I mean, is it preserved? Is it like a place you can visit, or is it just like sitting there and somebody lives there now?
2: Well, the situation is that it's it's like I don't think there's ever been enough money to do something really big with it, so it's still in the family. Her family still owns it, and they prefer it if you make an appointment to come there, um, and they'll they'll walk you around the grounds. And what's amazing is that when you're there. You, all of her stories come to life, like you, you know, like you see the barn. So you, you see, like, um, you know, where the Bible salesman like convinced uh, the one-legged woman to go up into the hayloft, and you see her her peacocks, and you see, you know, like you get a sense of what it was like for her to, you know, imagine the worlds of her own stories. I mean, she's she's very much a a presence there. You see her, her, um, her crutches and, you know, her typewriter, everything is, is, is is still there. And it's, it's very modest. I sort of like that about it. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it, it, there's no, there's not a sniff of the amusement park or the, you know, the sort of, um, campy, uh, memorial. um I think she would she would like it that way, but
0: like graceland it's, it's like, not like the Graceland of American
2: letters or anything it totally is not it's so, and, and you know and and that's, there's nothing wrong with graceland i mean um it's part of the the American id, but uh I don't know she sort of when I was a kid she you know, I had this English teacher who said that you know like all the great American writers are southern writers, and I grew up in the Northeast, and so that was sort of like a blow to hear. Um and so it's kind of it's I've I've lived in Texas and I've lived in in, in a, um in Georgia now for for well over a decade I've been in the south and so it's kind of you know sort of a funny thing to be a, a carpet a literary carpetbagger. But um But hey, but now, think,
0: ten years you have some cred. Now you're a southern writer, so you can join yeah. the, the
2: legacy. Oh, I wouldn't ne- no, I wouldn't ne- I don't think anyone would ever I I don't think I don't think I would ever be accepted as, and it's, it, and that's okay. It's like I don't, I, I think that there's, there's an inheritance, and you don't, you have to tread very lightly and be respectful of those things. But it is, it is sort of nice to, to think about her presence in the world because she's. I don't know if you, if you, if you're a fan of hers, but she's Flannery O'Connor to me is just sort of, um, you know, just she's, she's a complicated figure. But she's like the one person that you say her name in a room full of writers and everybody's heart sort of soars, you know, Um, even like the the grumpiest souls have a have a relationship with her work, I think.
0: Yeah, she's Um, hard. She's hard not to like, you
2: know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm in my bedroom, which is um, like my bed is like covered in books. So I don't even know. I'm in the process of I'm on sabbatical this year and I'm trying to write uh, my next book. And so I think that like you, you know, you you go out in the world and you're all washed and fresh, and people think that you've you know put together. But if anyone ever actually came into my apartment, I think that uh, you know there would be uh, like social services would probably descend.
0: <laughs> be like an episode um, of
2: it'd be like an episode of Hoarders. It, you know, it's like I, I, that show. I can't I can't like I I want to watch that show. I'm like fascinated, and then I just get you know like. Oh, I mean the anxiety I have for for those people. It's not that bad. And like the thing is, is like everything I have is is really sort of nice and lovely. And I have at the the foot of my bed, I have these. Uh, um, my my parents are rare book dealers, and my every once in a while they'll give me some some great piece of literature, great piece of art. And my dad gave me these um, these two, uh, Eudora Welty photographs that she did with the WPA, and and they're signed. And so I sort of am. Yeah, I get to look at them, and then above my bed, I have, I always write in bed, I have like a plaque that says poetry, and I have a plaque that says pervert, and, uh, Wait, and I have a... Above your bed? Yeah, right above my bed, because you, you just, you, you just want to put it out there, um, <laughs> and I have a letter from um, the management of the Grand Hotel in, in Stockholm, Sweden, which is where all the, the Nobel laureates Day when they win the, the the big big prize and uh, it's a it's a note from the I stayed there once with a friend. Yeah, I, the,
0: I had a drink there with my wife. We were in Stockholm a couple of years ago. It's a nice old isn't hotel. it
2: beautiful? Yeah. Oh, I love that place. Oh, that's fantastic. So you know, so you know, so they, they I had like travel candles and I lit them up and they basically wrote me this, this note chastising me for, uh, for for uh, for try to you know light the hotel on fire I guess. So, so those are like the things that are in my, and I have a photograph of my my grandfather, who's a FBI agent, right above my bed.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like is, I'm, I'm
0: picturing some sort of like severe gaze, like looking down. You know, like
2: he was a sweet. He was a very, very sweet, sweet man. He was sort of like one of the one of like the original G-men, and uh, he would, uh, yeah, I mean, like there, there's a sense of like. When I was little and I found out that my grandfather was an FBI agent, you know, it's sort of the, the like, I often think, like, I'm on the case, you know, like, like I always thought in college someone was going to tap me on the back and, like, you know, have me, you know, be a secret agent or, you know, didn't happen, didn't happen. But uh,
0: <laughs> So did your grandfather ever, like, bring down any, like, notable criminals or anything like that?
2: Oh, he worked on, um, do you know about the Brinks robbery case? It was the largest cash robbery in in history for the longest time. And um he worked on that. He was sort of like the second in command of the, the Boston um the, the sort of New England division. And he um they knew they knew who stole the money, but they couldn't prove it. And they couldn't get any of the guys to flip. And it was literally a situation where there was like the statute of limitation was gonna run out. It was like a like a week before it was going to run out and they got this one guy who they always knew like didn't think that he'd gotten his fair share. Like he was the one guy who didn't get as much cash as the rest of the guys, and uh, they got him to flip and they got him to to squeal. And uh, my favorite part of it is that like they asked him like what he do with the money, and uh, the guy was like, "Well, we spent it. Like, what do you, what do you think we do with the money?" <laughs> so he was a he was a really cool dude, and he um you know there um when my I had a my other sort of connection to Atlanta before I moved down here was I have a, an aunt who was a she was a civil rights um, leader she did a lot of work and she actually lived in Martin Luther King's house and um, within 20 minutes of her arriving to the house um, it was back in the 60s um, my grandfather got a telegram from one of the, the, you know, the FBI, one of the heads of the FBI saying, you know, what the hell is your daughter doing in King's house? Because the whole place was, like, bugged, I have to imagine, you know.
0: Oh, my um, God. So, wait, like, she lived there when he lived there, or is this after he had been killed?
2: He, and he was still alive. there. I mean, like, she was, like, she was, um, you know, at Ebenezer Baptist, Baptist Church on Easter Sunday with him, like, sitting on, like, the, and it's a tiny little church. I mean, she, she was with a um, a group of, young people that he had living in a house. And I don't think he was actually living there at the time. Um, I think he was, you know, on the road or um, in, you know, I, I, he, she knew him, but uh, the, you know, the sort of the, the craziness of it all to me is just like the, the speed of the you know like that sort of sense of like we think that we we live in this new age of surveillance you know but but uh it it, it's always always sort of like always kind of been this way that
0: it's so freaky who knows i mean you know with like yeah who knows the technology these days they can listen to anybody easily you know oh yeah so uh, you mentioned a couple of things earlier that I want to ask you about. Like, first of all, you, you write in bed, like Woody Allen. Like, there are certain writers who yeah. – like Mark Twain did that, I believe. Like, there are certain writers who write, like, while in repose. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Like, you're lying down? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, laptop on your belly kind of thing?
2: Comple- it's like my my, my my pet, you know. It's the, the sort of – you know the, my most intimate relationship is with my, my laptop. So to
0: say. <laughs> what kind of laptop is it? Does it have a name or –
2: yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not precious about it in that way, but it's, it is funny how you do sort of feel like I went through this period where I had a bunch of Macs, like, die on me. It's like a MacBook Pro, and I had a bunch die on me all in a row, and there was one that I did a lot of writing on that, I, like, I really had this sort of, it had this, like, totemic um, significance to me, and when it died, I was like, oh, God, will I be able to recapture? Um, but, uh, yeah, I have, I have really bad arthritis. Um, so it's very hard for me to sit in a chair for any extended period of time. Um, I tried like writing standing up, you know, like Hemingway, and I can I can do that for a bit of time, but I feel like there's something I always love the beginning of Martin Amos's the information and the idea like that the information comes at night. Um, because there's something about like right before I'm about to go to sleep when suddenly like the you know, I'm visited by the story and it just it's um it's a way of sort of capturing that, and I can only really write at night like I can edit during the day somewhat, but I'm kind of useless for uh i mean i i like I always thought that I would suddenly be the kind of person who woke up at five o'clock in the morning, but I'm the kind of person I can stay up forever, like I could stay up until five six seven um I just. Can't wake up <laughs> that early, and I'm—I don't know. I'm just—I I have accepted the fact that I'm not going to grow out of that sort of grad school, uh, undergrad sort of mentality about staying up all night and doing your work uh, at the last minute. That's just sort of. You know, that's, I've just accepted it's who I am.
0: Well, but you know, those hours, you know, it's hard for me because I I have a young child and so she's up at the crack of dawn. So like if I stay up too late, it gets really ugly because then she's up at like six and it's like, oh God, you know, but those hours late at night, just like the hours really early in the morning. But I mean, if you're up working between midnight and 5am, that's glorious. It's so quiet. No phone calls, no emails, you know, it's just, it's perfect.
2: There's nothing to distract you and you, you really do feel like alone in the world that you're attempting to create um, and it's, it's, I, you know, I always tell my students, it's like, there are things that you can do and say at night that you can't do during the day. You know, there are things that like, there, that, there are certain intimate things that you could never say to somebody in, in broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon, you know? And, um, I, I think that there's something about writing at night that really, uh, allows me access to those, those words and those thoughts.
0: So is that, and that's how you've always worked or did you eventually come to this? Like you, like you said you have arthritis, like how did, like how bad is this arthritis? You, you're, you're a young person. You shouldn't have arthritis, right?
2: No, no. Well, I've had it since I was little. I've had it like, I was a dancer when I was a kid and I had it in my knees. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, I, I stave it off. I don't take anything for it. I'll, I just exercise to like, I mean, that's really ultimately like I think the best thing you can do. But I, um... I've always been this way. I've always been, you know, you think about like the circadian rhythms of your life. I actually really love it when I go out to LA because I can wake up at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, with a three hours difference. I think it's, it's um just as long as I'm on the East coast, I'm, I'm, I'm useless in the morning. I've always been like, you know, every time I had like a job, there would always be this moment when my boss would like call me into the office and be like, why don't you come in at like, 10.30, maybe 11, you know, like, you know you're like, because, because, and part of it was that, like, I could do the work, you know, it just like, it was obvious that like, I wasn't going to be there at nine, you know, when my students asked to meet with me at like 8.30 in the morning. I just sort of look at them like, yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> you, know? uh, you, know,
0: you, you, got, you got to know yourself, you know, people have yeah. different, people have different clocks. And I was reading something recently about, uh, like, this is semi-related. It was about high schools and how certain high schools were testing, uh, a later start time for the school day and like yeah. students uh, product, you know, productivity and performance improved dramatically. If like the first class started at nine, as opposed to getting them there at like seven in the morning, because yeah. I remember getting up for high school at like six in the morning and being at, you know, <gasps> in the building by seven thirty like they get you there early.
2: Brutal, just brutal. I mean, I like, are you like, were you someone who used to love staying up and then like you have, you have a baby of a daughter, you have to, you have to accommodate your life to, to your responsibilities? I mean, were you, it's, you know, for a me,
0: night owl? I, like, this is the thing. I've tried to decide what I am because I'm not like one of those early bird people, though. I mean, I got up at six this morning, but um, I'm not, I, I think I'm sort of both. Like, I hate to go yeah. to bed at night because I, I tend to get caught up in stuff and I want to do stuff, but I also really hate sleeping in too late because I feel like I missed daylight. Oh, like, wow. I, I need daylight, you know? It's so, like, I'm just, yeah. I haven't been sleeping well at all. And, uh, you know, lately, it goes in phases, like sometimes I'll go through like a week or two, or even, you know, longer where I'll sleep great. And then I, you know, will on some sort of regular pattern have a week or two where I just can't sleep consecutive hours. It's crazy. So I just came, I'm just coming out of one of those phases, hopefully.
2: Well, it's funny. I mean, I think that, like, all, like, if you get a bunch of writers together, they'll all eventually start talking about insomnia (laughs) and their relationship to it, you know, like, and I mean, it is the thing that we can't command, like, you can't just, you know, put yourself to sleep. And uh, I definitely I mean, I suffer from I mean, you know, there's the fact that I, uh, I like to write at night, but there's also the fact that I can't get to sleep. Right. And um, I don't, I've never been able to take medicine very easily for anything um and i uh i i, I knew that when i was younger i always thought like you know you live in a college dormitory and you're afraid you might miss something so you stay up all that's night that's how
0: i something. feel <laughs> that's how i feel about everything like i i'm afraid yeah. i'm gonna miss something if i go to bed too early and i'm afraid yeah. i'm gonna miss something if i sleep in too late you know it's yeah. like i don't want to miss my life but at the same time yeah. i think like seven hours of sleep or more is a Good idea you know you don't want to be yeah. unhealthy so
2: well and if you have I mean, if t- like you want you want to be fresh and good for your 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 daughter and your 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 wife like you want to actually be present for and i think that like there's nothing most fights happen because of like money, lack of sleep, and like people are hungry and grumpy you know it's like right. the, so in order to like be a good citizen and and it's it's like one of those things like I know that I should go to bed, I know that I should, I wish I had somebody who could just tell me, like, go to sleep. Um, it's time to go to sleep.
0: But, um, but you know, your brain gets going and, like, the writer, yeah. the writer brain and, like, there's something, because there's something like really wonderful about the sleep that you get after you have... Uh, depleted that res that mental reserve with writing yeah. you know what I'm saying like when you're oh yeah when you're empty and then you lie down you just you're done and you're out yeah. and that's great sleep you know
2: yeah no it's like you've you've actually like that feeling you know there's no better feeling than having just written and and just rewarding yourself with you know it's like I, I actually got it I got it I did it I can I can you know I can, I can, I can quiet down now. I can go to
0: bed. Yeah. Like why, if it's, if it feels so good to have written, why in, why is it so freaking hard to sit down to write? You know, like if you know, Uh if you know, it's going to feel so good when you're done and you know that, and you've experienced it countless times, like why is every day, like, I mean, at least for me anyway, it's like always a struggle to get myself in the chair and just like locked in.
2: Well, and how long does it take you? I mean, how long, like once Uh, you've actually sat down, how long does it take uh, you to get
0: into it? It depends. I mean, if like, if I'm in a situation where I have a very narrow window, then, you know, you sort of adhere to that. But like, I'm a person who can spend, if I have a day to write, I can spend three or four hours warming up, whatever the hell that means. Just like sitting there, noodling around, reading, like flipping, you know, flipping through different books, looking at stuff online. Like it can be like an absurdly long, you know, lengthy process, but. You know, I don't think it's that uncommon. I think, and and I don't think it's uncommon um, across the arts. I think like you yeah. sort of have to warm up somehow. You know, I don't know.
2: Well, I find I find that like I have to trick myself into doing it, and there has to be like I have to trick myself in all these little ways. And um, I just I went to the, the big AWP conference in Boston. I, I did this panel on women in the sea. Um, which is, it was just sort of an interesting subject and, and the panel was great. All the, the other women were wonderful. and um, But there was this one, you know, like the, there was this one night when people were trying to figure out like what the VIP parties were. And someone actually asked me like, you know, what are all the VIP parties, Amber? And I just like, looked at them and said like, isn't it enough to just be with your friends? Like, <laughs> What is it that you're like chasing after? I don't know. But I just, I thought, you know, in the face of all of this, you know, um, all, all of this sort of striving and anxiety, all these people trying, I'm just going to go back to my, my hotel room and I'm going to write. And that was the best, like that sort of like, you know, I'm going to reward myself in this place where everybody's, you know, trying to be really social and, and I don't, I don't quite under, have you ever gone to that conference? I don't know if you've ever. Yeah.
0: I mean, I d- I went once. I just like babbled about this in a, mo- in a recent monologue. Like it makes me anxious and I, you know, yeah. I don't like to the thing about it is that, like, I'm of two minds. Like, personally, like, it's hard for me to gear up to go, but, like, I don't want to, like, a lot of people seem to really enjoy it, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, yeah, you know?
2: Yeah, I think it's great for poets. I think it's really, you know, sort of, like, a wonderful uh, uh, community. And I think it's – I have so many – I went to grad school for, like, years, so I have, like, my rose period, my blue period, my, my cubist period. Like, I have all of these – Different people I know from different errors, and so it's it's nice. It's nice, but I'm I like I don't like running into people like I like to like know if I'm gonna, you know. <laughs> so sort this of, and it's like you know it's one I of the to, situations. I need to be
0: prepared. Well, it's, and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming, and it's like you know, it's a trade show.
2: Yeah. Ultimately. Oh, totally. It's like, here are the new cars and right. here's, here are the new boats. And I just, my response to it all was like, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go write. And then the next day, you know, one of my friends asked me, you know, what I did and I told him, and he was like, oh man, <laughs> like, that's what I should do. <laughs> like it's yeah. just, You know, that instant sense of like envy. Uh, but when you, you know, that uh, when someone tells you that they just have a good day and of course you don't, I mean, I never trust it. I never think like, oh, that was a great day of writing. I think, that night I wrote like five pages of stuff and there were three sentences that I could probably pull out and they're not even a part of a paragraph to get, they're not like <laughs> just like three little bits that, that, um, you know, that I was trying to sort of think about like the opening lines of, of, of chapters, like, and, um, this project I'm working on now is in multiple points of view and. Was it a I novel? Just, you know, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe who knows. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the hope, but let's not get cocky. <laughs>
0: <Right>. um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've learned my lesson the hard way on that. You know, it's almost like mm-hmm. it's, it's dangerous to talk about these things when they're in, yeah. in, you know, when you're in process.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that we like just, the, the, the ability to think in scene, like I'm really interested in how, how you could consider like, like the, the, the sort of, scenes of a of a book, like what are the big scenes and, and I've read a you know, I read like all the Edward St. Aubin novels, which are basically, you know, almost all take place over one day, um, and one extended scene or one extended location with multiple flashbacks and um, roving point of view. And so I'm trying to think in scene always. And um you know the the problem with that is that like I had a one of my first teachers um, was uh, Andre the III, who was just like you know the most zen and generous. And, like, just one—I don't know if you've read his work, but um, *House of Sand and Fog* is just a fantastic novel. And he just had a memoir out a couple years ago called *Townie*, that's really great. And you know, he—I uh, gave him part of the novel that um, my my novel *Starboard Sea*. Years ago, I gave him part of it to read, and there was, like, this sort of ellipses in the middle of one of the pages, and he's like, well, what's this? And I said, oh, you know, that's a scene where, you know, like, such and such is going to happen, and, you know, the character is going to do this. And, you know, and he just sort of looked at me, and he's like, did you write it? Have you written that scene? And I was like, no, 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 I haven't written it yet, but I know it's going to happen. And he was like, (laughs) you know, like, how do you know that's what's going to happen if you haven't written it? you have no idea what's going to happen. So with a novel, I feel like there's this part of you that tries to plan and tries to be an architect and tries to be practical, but, like, your story has so much more – like, your story is way more interesting and way smarter than you are. Um, And so you can only kind of plan so much. So even if you think that there's a a scene that you're writing toward, you know, there is no inevitability. You know, it's not – it ain't necessarily so. And so – you know, that's what I've been kind of grappling with the past, the past few months.
0: Um, and then you mentioned earlier before I forget, just cause I like to, you know, I like to make sure that I, if, if I hear something interesting, I, I go back to it. But, uh, you mentioned that you are the child of rare book dealers. So like yeah. you were sort of born to this, like, I mean, that's a, that's both of your parents do this.
2: Yeah. No, my, um, it, it, my mother was a rare children's book dealer, and my my father is a rare book dealer. Um, uh, my mother, uh, she gave me actually I have this beautiful edition of Alice in Wonderland that sound by, that's signed by Alice uh, Liddell Hargreaves, signed by Alice herself. Um, and uh, you know I grew up in this home it was it, every wall had bookshelves and every every wall was filled. With books, and um you know my parents just had the I spent all of my vacations like you know I've never been to Disney World to do that because we spent all of our vacations like go going hunting for books um in New England and just all around the the northeast, and uh you know my dad had bank documents like signed by Lord Byron and um, notes from. Samuel T. Coleridge to his son, and um, the uh, Thoreau's first book is like a week on the Concord and Merrimack, and in that, in the first hundred uh, copies of the that book, the editor forgot to make the changes that Thoreau had requested, so Thoreau went through with like pencil and like hand made the changes, and so my dad had like a you know copy of that and. So,
0: growing the, up. so what is the market for these things? Like, that's what I'm curious about. Like, cause you know, there are people who love books and they love to read. And then there are people who are into like, into books, like and fetish and yeah. love to collect. Like, uh, who are the people out there who are buying rare books? And is there a, like a Mona Lisa of rare books? You know, like, is there like, <laughs> some sort of like, you know, like ultimate yeah. rare book?
2: Well, it's funny because they my parents would do like the Boston Book Fair and the New York Book Fair in L.A. and um, they do book fairs in London and you'd be surprised by how many celebrities like like or like sort of you know um, like who uh, like I mean John Laroquette I don't know if you know like he has an incredible like book collection and um, Glenn Charles and Les Charles collect books. And what, they, this created, be... they created
0: they created cheers, right? Yeah,
2: <laughs> okay. yeah. And I mean they used to, I mean like I used to when I was a little kid I was trained to like, you know, answer the phone and take book orders. My my father had like catalogs that he would send out. And um Carter Burden, who's a um Gloria Vanderbilt's brother, like he used to by books, Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> believe it or not, oh <laughs> like I've, I've seen him at, at book fairs. Uh, he's much taller and sort of, you know, very sort of reptilian looking. But um, <laughs> so, it's a, I mean, the, like, the, it's a like the, a lot of the, the the big. I would say the book business like really changed with the internet. I mean, my dad, you know, my mother and father having incredible wealth and depth of knowledge around, you know, like first editions and like the provenance of books. And now with the internet, you know, people just sort of look things up and and charge accordingly and don't really consider condition. Um, But uh, the big sort of, I think, lasting marketplace are are libraries. So like my dad had the only extant copy of a play by Eugene O'Neill and he sold that to the, the Beinecke at Yale. Um, and um, you yeah, have like a, a, a typescript of Our Town by Thornton Wilder. And I think that also went to the Beinecke. And so you, you hope, I think, if, if it's anything that has real significance, that it goes to a research library or it goes to a place um, that uh, will, will keep the, 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 the book or the manuscript or the letters alive. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I've seen like Shakespeare folios and quartos. I know I've always tried to figure out if there's like something I could do with this because it's, it's such a world of intrigue. Like the rare book business is like this sort of crazy. Um, And I know all these sort of very funny stories, but I, I don't know. Um, And it's, it's, um, it's
0: hard to dramatize. I would imagine.
2: Well, yeah. And it's like such a small niche. I mean, there aren't, there aren't that many, I think there's a way of making it all. And you can make anything compelling. But, um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the first editions, when I was a kid, you could find a first edition of the catcher in the rye, like just about anywhere, like the the world was lousy with them. And I mean, my, I remember my father had like a shelf that maybe had four of them and you know, he, he, back then he probably sold them for like next to nothing. And now if you had, you know, now one of those copies depending, you know, the condition could be worth, you know, 10,000, $40,000. Um, really? To a collector. Oh, yeah. Like, to somebody who really, really wanted it? Yeah. I mean, because there, there are certain books that just have, you know, a history and a an ethos and they have, like, that sort of desirability, like, a, a first edition of Lord of the Rings, you know, is, is I've seen that, like, um, those are highly sought after.
0: So what what, um, do, what do people do with them? Do they read them or do they just, like, like put them on a shelf as, like, a art object?
2: Yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's that element of fetishizing. I think that it's... It's that there was a time, I think, if you were, you know, of a certain class and of a certain degree of privilege, like you had your library, and your library was sort of like the spoils of your intellect, you know, and that you had some sort of predilection for, for, um, you know, I have a friend whose father collects like Thomas Maughan books. Um, and it's just, I think it's 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 dying out. Like, I don't think... There are as many people like nowadays. Like people want to collect like you know some some rare Atari, (laughs) like like some some space space um, invaders. Like
0: the original space invaders.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's just like this sort of. I think things go in waves, and and there. I mean I hope that there are still people who. Who care about all this stuff? But um, but can, it you, was a can fun... you
0: can you make like I mean not to be too intrusive, but can you make sure. big money dealing rare books? Is that like it sounds like maybe if you had the right books, you could make a lot of money if these things are selling for forty thousand dollars a pop?
2: I mean, you can. You have to. Yeah, I mean, you you can make a living off. I mean, my parents like you know raised three children, um, uh, and uh, sent us all sent us all to school, and um, they still have a beautiful library, and beautiful, um, collection. Um, and I, you know, most, like all the fiction will probably come to me, you know, and, and I have, I mean, I have like my, um, And
0: you will promptly sell that fiction to Bill (laughs) O'Reilly.
2: Exactly. (laughs) I just, I, I can't sell anything. Like I have right now, I mean, I have, uh, like I'm looking at this, like, you know, like this sort of lawyer's, um, glass, like, Bookcase, and I'm looking at, it, and I have all of these um, fine press books from this press called the Palamon Press, um, which this guy Stuart Wright ran. And um, you know, I have all these beautiful, you know, limited edition, maybe like 25 or 100 copies, all signed. You know, I have a lot of Barry Hannah, who is one of my teachers. Um, I have all these beautiful, you know, basically like they're they're just pieces of art, and I would never sell. And I mean, I just would, I don't have that that sort of um, capitalist mentality. I'm just very happy to have my books and then, like, you know, every once in a while I'll take them out and kind of appreciate them. And and and, um, and I think that's part of being a collector and part of caring about writing is to, to care about the book and to care about, you know, the. I have this great... My dad gave me these letters by um, Anthony Waugh, who is Evelyn Waugh's father. And in the letters. Um, they're written during the, the war and Evelyn was, you know, he was in the military and he was stationed off somewhere and his father's <coughs> writing to this friend about his son and make, makes a comment that he's working on this book and the book that he's working on is Brideshead Revisited. And, you know, I have these letters and like, that means something to me. Are they, know, mean, like I, these
0: are, these are like bound letters or these are just, no,
2: like- these are just, these are just like type, typewritten letters, um, there's a huge market for, for correspondence. Like I have, I have a great letter by John Cheever um, that, that he wrote to, to a poet and it's, it's on his, his letterhead. It's beautiful. And he, uh, he makes a comment about seeing Paul Zimmer um, on all fours running down fifth Avenue, barking like a dog. Like it's very funny, (laughs) funny, funny letter. And I have a letter by uh, Richard, Connell, who wrote *The Most Dangerous Game*, that short story. I don't know if you remember that story. It's like the, the 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 guy has an island he's gonna gonna hunt. You know, this man who washes up shipwreck on his island. Oh
0: right, right, right. I remember. Yeah. I, that was that was like assigned in either college or high school, I believe.
2: I it's one of those stories. It's like yeah, it's like still one of those stories. It's hard to 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 leave high school without reading it. And I, I believe it was made into a. a um, Jean-Claude Van Damme film, you know? um,
0: <laughs> which is but, the, uh, the, the his, very best outcome you can hope for as a short exactly. story.
2: Exactly. And it was, it was too Van Damme long as a movie, <laughs> but, um, he, uh, he, Rick Connell, like is writing to a young boy who's like asked for his advice. And, you know, I have this letter that's, you know, just talks about how hard writing is and it's, you know, it's directed at a little 11-year-old boy, but everything that kind conno- of—it's like—holds true, <laughs> like to, uh, to to any writer, no matter. Just, it just know.
0: goes to show you that writers will bitch about writing to anyone, like even an.
2: Exactly 11-year-old. to anyone who will listen, <laughs> even an 11-year-old kid who just wants an autograph.
0: So to all of my 11-year-old <laughs> listeners out there, I hope you're yeah. enjoying. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, okay, so childhood. Let's get into like your biography a little bit. You mean, obviously you're growing up in a house of books. You live in Massachusetts. You have two siblings. Are you, um, you take to books right away as a young kid? Like, were you, were you a happy kid, etc.
2: I, I mean, I was a very, I was an odd kid. I mean, when I was nine years old, I told my parents I was going to go to the Iowa Writers Workshop.
0: Um, you knew about the Iowa Writers Workshop when you were nine?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was a weird kid. I mean, I, all the only thing I ever wanted to be was a writer. Like that was, that was it. That was, um, that, that was it. And I knew about, I mean, I knew my parents knew a lot of writers. They, um, they also like, you know, had, uh, they would publish broadsides and like fine press books. And there was a woman named Janet Lewis who was Ivo Winters, who was a, you know, sort of well-known 20th-century literary critic, Janet Lewis was his his wife, and she was a writer. She actually wrote the The Wife of Martin Gear, um, which was made into a really bad movie with Richard Gere, um, which is about a man who like uh, goes goes off to war and dies, and his wife sort of moves on with her life, and then a man comes back claiming to be the you know her her former husband, and he may or may not be. Uh, be the man, um, and so my my parents published uh, a lot of her work, and I knew her, and she and her husband, you know, were sort of this literary couple. Like she she told me stories about um, Nabokov, like visiting her in Stanford and go, going butterfly hunting with him. Um When I was very little like uh, she told me this story. My birthday was the same day as her wedding anniversary, so she sort of took an interest in me and would always send me birthday cards and presents and um you know there was this kind of for me like very much like or you know the sort of beauty of the history and romance of writing was always always present in my life, and um I was a middle child, so Nobody ever paid attention to me or listened to me, <laughs> um, which is great because then you had the freedom to just observe everything. And, and
0: uh, yeah, I was a middle—I I was a middle kid too.
2: Yeah, I, were you ignored or were you?
0: I don't know. I was sort of, I mean, maybe, a, maybe that just is a function of being a middle child and it happens naturally, but I was also the only boy, so maybe oh. it balanced out a little bit. I don't know.
2: Yeah, so sort of, were, you, were you the precious, precious son?
0: I don't know. My sisters would say so. I don't, I would probably yeah. argue against it, but I mean, we were all, my parents did a pretty good job paying attention, I think, as much as they could, but I'm certainly, I feel like I'm certainly the oddball of the family. yeah and i don't think anyone would contest that
2: (laughs) well did you i mean did you know when you were very young that you wanted to be a writer
0: yeah you know i but the thing is is that when i hear about lives like yours or like you know your understanding of i mean from nine years old knowing about the iowa writers workshop like i don't know if i necessarily am of it as much as some people or as much as i imagine that i might need to be sometimes do you know what i'm saying like I I was always told that I was a good writer by teachers, and my parents always encouraged it. And looking back, I guess I just sort of listened to them. People basically told me, like, this is what I should be doing, and so I started doing it. But uh, I'm not, like, an uber book nerd in a a super pure way. You know what I'm saying? I think people have a – I feel like I'm not as well-read as I – should be or something, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I always say like, I mean, I watch a tremendous amount of television, um, but like I always, jo- it's like I can quote Yates, so I can I can, I can watch as much TV <laughs> you're as right. I want, you're like, yeah, you know. I have
0: this shit memorized. I can watch, you know, the, you know, the Walking Dead or whatever, but, you know.
2: I mean, I think it's like that sort of, you know, how you embrace when you're young, like the things that you embrace. I did a lot of theater, and I. I, I, I just cared tremendously about poetry and, um, you know, that was really my first, my first great, great love. Um, but I knew, I knew I wasn't a poet. I knew I was a fiction writer, um, mainly because it's, it's, it's a way of, you know, I'm someone who, you know, I was a girl, I sort of knew very early on that I had very little value in the world <laughs> and, you know, so it's not easy to get people to listen to you or pay attention. Like the the most dangerous thing a woman can do is stand up in public and speak, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that it was a way to, um, to, to get command over the, the stories that I wanted to tell and the, you know, the things that I wanted, wanted to communicate and how, you know, I, I wanted to be heard. I mean, if you saw me when I was a little kid, I was like this very shy, you know, blonde girl who I think people just sort of, you know, thought I was smart without even challenging it or finding out. And inside, secretly, and like I, um, I mean, I wanted to be like a stand-up comedian. You know, like that was <laughs> one of the things that I thought about. With I still want to be a stand-up. Comedian. Me like too that was one of the that. things. That, I like, wish I could. Don't
0: I wish I could, you know, like, I think that's why part of the reason why I do this show, because I'm like hiding in my room and like, there's no audience that I can actually see, you know? Oh man. Uh, but I like comedy a lot, you know?
2: Have you ever, who do you, who do you love? Cause this is my, I'm like a big comedy nerd. Me too.
0: Nerd. I, I, like as a kid, like this is the thing. I was more of a comedy nerd as a kid than I was like a deep book nerd. But like, I used to get cassette <laughs> tapes of like, I mean, Eddie Murphy, Delirious when I was yeah. a kid, oh, Eddie Murphy, so raw. Sam Kinison, George Carlin, Richard Pryor um I'm trying to think i mean all the hbo comedy specials like, yeah. it, like rodney dangerfield you know it goes on but i loved them all when i was a kid and nowadays like my favorite show on tv is probably louie like i love yeah. i love that show
2: no i saw him i went to see him um when he was he was here in in, in Athens and uh, i went with my friend sabrina Oramark, who's a poet and reginald mcnight he's a fiction he's a brilliant fiction writer And it was, I mean, he, I think that Louis, he's just, it's, it's so beautiful to see someone have their moment where like everything within the culture is just like coming through his, his brain, his mind, his beautiful mind. And he's, he's able to talk about, you know, family and disappointment and, you know, grudges (laughs) and he does it all with you know, such such art and such Well, such and it's heart. like,
0: the thing about and like, I, you know, I have a friend who is, like, bagging on the show. Like, there's, like, the Louis Backlash or whatever. Sure.
1: Some, some people, oh, yeah. But
0: the thing about that show is that it surprises me. And yeah. I'm never surprised by what I see on TV. Do you know what I'm saying? But, like, I find oh, yeah. myself consistently being like, holy shit, he said it. You know, like, yeah. I, can't, I can't believe he's getting away with this. And he's got a great deal. He has, like, Final Cut on that show, I think. And
2: it's He awesome. does everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, like, the cameraman, the editor. And he... I think is, is really excited to just subvert any expectation you have, any narrative expectation you might have. Right. You know, like suddenly like the helicopter will come down and the girl – like the girl he's on a date with will just like be, you know, medevac out of the date. Well, but
0: yeah, but that's and, the thing is that that show is like it's so you – know, everyone always kind of like uh, gives it kudos for being so real. And yet at the same time, and it is, you know, there's, it, it yeah. digs into stuff in a very real way, but at the same time, like, you know, there are these flights of fancy, just like you said, with the helicopter, uh,
2: um, well, this story, like that little kid that he wound up having to babysit like this past season. Who like comes to his house and was like eating a, a bowl of raw meat, <laughs> and like throws a carpet out the window. I mean, it's just like, like, like And yet, it's like that very fine line. It's sort of like a Donald Bartholomew story where it's like, you know, is this reality or is this just is reality just like ultimately like surrealism is just super realism, right? Yeah. And um, it's like you're, I think it's, it's like, it's like a, you're in,
0: it's like you're in the world of his head, you know, clearly. Yeah and it's Completely, it's, it's yeah. a good I think it's a good place to be.
2: Yeah, I love like there's a comedian Stuart Lee who's a British um comedian who uh if you if you've never heard of him like you have to check out like all of his stuff. Like go to it doesn't excerpt well like you have to sort of watch the long form of 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 his comedy but he is able to deconstruct and I think he's probably um you know, I, th- I think Louis C.K. is aware of him and and maybe sort of ha- makes similar moves. Um, but he's my he had two books come out last last year that are um, the uh, they're they're basically like his comedy routines, but he's annotated them, and they're two of like the best books I've read recently. I mean, I think that you learn so much about timing repetition and variation, (laughs) um, from just watching, you know, just watching comedy and, 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 and that's really, um, probably like my biggest inspiration and influence, just all of the, the comedy specials I watch. I'm obsessed with, I hate when people say that. Um, but I love Nick Kroll who has a, he has a show on Comedy Central right now called Kroll Show. Have you seen it?
0: No, I haven't.
2: Oh, you have to, you can watch it all on like Hulu or on the Comedy Central website. And he is, I mean, he's just sheer genius. Um, he uh, is sort of making fun of, you know, reality television and culture, but he's doing it in this very surprising and engaged way. Uh, and uh, he, like he has these, um, the, he, he, plays this um, woman called Liz, and Jenny Jenny Slade plays like his business partner, who's also named Liz, and they have a a, a PR firm called Publicity. <laughs> 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 and when Nick Kroll, he's like this, you know, very sort of handsome handsome guy. He I've never seen a man like transform so completely. Into drag, into like the creature of being a woman, and uh, they speak in these horrible voices. But it's it's so smart, and um, you know, I I wish I could write a story that's as good as an episode of Crawl Show because I, I think it's
0: it's it's really hard. Like, but you know, it brings up an interesting point because it's it's really really hard to write super funny prose. Like, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, and like I find. I guess, and it sounds like we're similar, but, like, I find myself maybe most moved by comedy because it's a hard trick to pull, first of all, but then there's also something, I think, heroic about taking the muck of life and turning it into a laugh, you know? I I don't know. That's how it is for me. Like, I I need it so badly, and I just gravitate towards it, and, um, you know, but sitting down to write a book, and, like, it's hard for me to find a book that makes me laugh out loud and I always say mm-hmm. that like as a litmus test like if you make me laugh out loud while I'm reading something you got me you know like yeah
2: oh completely yeah no it's the most seductive attribute I when um my novel is like this uh, very you know sort of um it's quite different from my short stories and it's it's very um sort of serious you know I hate the term coming of age but I guess that's what it is
0: um what are you talking about starboard so- sea
2: yeah, yeah. And when um, the same woman who copied it in my novel copied it in my short story collection, and she included this little note for me um, and said, uh, we had no idea that you were funny. Lots of <laughs> chuckles in here.
0: <laughs> Isn't it great when people are surprised that you actually like have a sense of humor?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, and it's and it, again, it's like one of those things like women are like really sort of expected to. But I always, you know, loved being with like a, a bunch of guys who would quote like I can quote movie lines as well as anyone. You know, I could sort of, you know, get down in the luck with it. And uh, there's another really great podcast called The Champs that Neil Brennan and Moisha Kasher and DJ Dugtown do. That's um, it's about comedy. Neil Brennan was the guy who created Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle. Ah, okay and um it's a fascinating they they um the guys they only interview um black comedians or entertainers and so it's some of the like most interesting conversation about race that's going on but they're also you know very very raw and you know um and dirty and i always love listening to podcasts you know that are just sort of like men talking cuz you get to to hear (laughs) like like I I always want to know what do people really think like don't you know don't change your language you know just because I'm Yeah, girl
0: that's the thing too is that like when you think about like how many pod I mean there's that you know thousands and thousands and thousands of podcasts out there and you know obviously there's it varies in quality from show to show but there's a lot of really good interesting stuff out there and I sometimes wonder like where's it all going to be like as a, as a, so, uh, as a cultural artifact of our time, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where's it eventually going to live? Like are people, cause it seems to me that if you were interested in, you know, uh, researching this era in human history, it would be like a really good place to go for how people were really thinking and feeling, you know?
2: Well, and, you know, and the language, like how, um, how alive the language is, um, with comedians, Can- especially, I think because it's their job to, To talk, it's their job to be quick-witted. So I find it to be just like there's a um, another comedian, Jay Moore, who has a podcast called Moore Stories, and he, you know, he was in he was in Jerry Maguire. He was on Saturday Night Live, Um, but he's really sort of, I think, often with comedians, like they're such big talents, like no one knows really what to do with them, so they all eventually just become, you know, cartoon voices for bad pixar films or great pixar films you know so like eddie murphy ultimately is just a you know he's just a nobody knows what to do with his brilliance you know it's like okay into a cartoon
0: okay so yeah and i get that and and like this is what i keep thinking and it it goes back to louie a little bit but it's like when you have somebody who is really talented and they're there you know there's not a a huge amount but there are a lot of talented people out there if you're running a tv studio or a movie studio, and I've I've had this conversation multiple times. If I'm, if I had my fingers on, on like the purse strings at a movie studio, I would go to Louis CK tomorrow or today. And I would say, I'm going to give you $30 million a year for the next 10 years to make a movie a year for me. Go. You have final cut. Just do it. Like you're good enough. Like why aren't they just giving talented people a show or a movie? You know what I'm saying? Well,
2: I think in in Louis CK's, case it's like because they did that and he made pootie tang <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: but he, he's come a long way I mean, no he
2: totally has come a long and, and no disrespect to, to pootie tang which, which is which has its own its own beauty and joy no i i think you're right i don't i think you know if you just left people alone people who are really talented just left them alone and gave them money like there's that in, the, in Freedom, in Jonathan Franzen's novel, there's this moment when like one of the sisters who's, you know, wants to like, be, you know, have this theater, um, you know, company, she gets her money, you know, to do it. And, and it's good. Like the work that she does is good. <laughs> and I just think like if you just gave people who want to create and want to make something, if you supported, and they, who have a proven record of, of, of making art, if you just supported them, then we would, the world would be a much more compelling place, but instead you have studio executives who want to give you notes. And um, if you've ever been like on a conference call with a bunch of people who are trying to – I adapted a screenplay with my, my friend Mark Jude Poirier, who's a, a novelist and a short story writer, and he's, he's um, had a number of films. Uh, he had a film called Smart People – in a film called goats that he wrote and he just wrote the screenplay for, uh, uh, I always butcher the Alice Monroe story, but it's like hate ship, friendship, courtship, love ship, marriage. And that film was, they just shot the film with um Kristen Wiig and Guy Pearce. And so he's just phenomenal. Like he's one of my favorite people in the world and he's a brilliant writer. And we adapted this screenplay of this, this novel, that neither one of us, you know, we had very mixed feelings about, but, you know, we wrote the screenplay, and then you'd be in a conference call with a bunch of people who, you know, would say, "Well, but what if?"
0: And they probably they <laughs> probably didn't even read the fucking novel. You know?
2: You're like, "Well, what if he? What if he's not? What if he's not going to go to med school? What if?" <laughs> you know, and and the thing is, is that like the minute uh, you try to satisfy somebody's "what if," like you've diminished your own position within the, the the story that you're trying to write. And I think you know, screenplays are very collaborative, and they should be. You know, because the process of making a film is collaborative. But if you have somebody who has a vision, who knows that they can, you know, see it through. Well, that's what and I'm who has saying. the ambition it, to do it,
0: it, it seems like you know. It, I mean, I know it's got to be more complicated than I'm making it sound, but it's like, like, be really good at curating a group of talented people, and then let them make stuff. And yeah, do you know, like, yeah, why is it so it, let, complicated? Look, yeah. It seems like that would be the way to go. Like, I was reading. Um, when The Descendants came out, I was reading an interview or a profile of Alexander Payne, and they were yeah. talking about like what, what a struggle he had to go through to get financing to make that movie after Sideways yeah I'm thinking to myself like seven years went by i want to say some like a you know extended yeah, period insane. of time, and it's like why are, why is somebody not letting this guy make movies? He's really good and he's proven it you know like
2: yeah, well, it might be too good, and then what would we do you know it might it might be like a really great thing and then and then where would we be? Yeah. you know I mean, I think that part of it is with film you know right now the the you know the the extent to which. You know, even the most talented actors or talented writers are just you know kind of um, once you have some amount of success, people want to figure out how you can you know write a comic book movie or how you can you know create a franchise and the idea like there was a time when you know the the budgets on independent films like a the one to three million dollar film which could go on to make thirty five million dollars, which is a great return on your investment. Um, there doesn't seem to be as much interest in those films and those sort of having those. And those are the films I always I always love. And so even films that are you know, supposedly independent nowadays are mostly coming from big, big studios and have those larger budgets. Um, I feel
0: like and, I feel like things are like we're like, especially with television, like in terms of distribution models and the Web and Netflix and. You know, like Amazon and Microsoft, they're all getting into content production. Like they're actually yeah, like, creating television studios, and like there's going to be a lot of upset. It'll be interesting to see how, like, the entrenched, you know, entities react to all this and how it all eventually sorts itself out because it seems to me, like, especially with regard to television and like the you know, these big sweeping stories, like uh, what's the one that just came out on Netflix? The uh,
2: house of cards. I just watched it all. Like, yeah. It, I mean, it was
0: so good. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, wow. Like, and that's like millions and millions of people. It was. Six,
2: I think it was like $60 million to make like 13 episodes. Um, you know, so like 13 hours or plus of like entertainment. And um, I mean, I, I hope, I mean, I hope that, I, I really, really hope that that's the new model, that people just decide, like, you know. Um, I mean, I think publishing could save itself if <laughs> you figured out how to extend, you know, how to include, like, to, to you know, do, I hate the word synergy, but do something involving, you know, books, film, television. Um, why give away the rights when you could actually, you know, figure out. Some system for doing it all. Well, Um, and
0: it also makes me think, Like, I mean, I feel like you you see a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people are hyphenates. You know, you have people who are authors and they write books and they also, you know, write screenplays and then you have you know, people crossing over and making their own movies. Like, it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me in the least to see more and more authors especially because they need to make a living like crossing over and adapting their own stuff and trying to raise money and shooting things on low budgets and then distributing it online. I mean, there's going to be a lot of those opportunities and the hard part is like, you know, the hard part is always making your money back, you know, or getting it funded yeah. in the first place. But, you know, like the the what's the what's the word I'm looking for, like the point of entry or the barrier to entry seems like it's getting lower and lower. And until somebody finds a way to raise it back up, you know, it's going to be, I think, some interesting times, some, some interesting, yeah. hopefully some interesting shows will get through the wires, you know.
2: Well, yeah. And the thing is, like, I mean, if you if you were to screenplay. And if it doesn't require a lot of c g i or special effects, like there's nothing stopping you really nowadays from figuring out how to then make it
0: right, right. you just need like a two thousand dollar camera and some sound equipment or whatever you know like
2: yeah or or, or steal a camera right, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> which i recommend um but uh like I think that's what uh you know um uh, some of the some some of the great great film directors just you know went to film school got a camera <laughs> and, like, and, and and then quit film school yeah. um, you know and walked off with it but like Fassbender did that that's how Fassbender made his first film he went to film school and stole a camera um, yeah I I just I think that like the old ways I feel personally like there's something you know, you, you, you always want to think like, you know, 20 years out, like, what is it going to be? Like, what is the, what is the model? You know, what, how are stories going to be told? How, how are they going to be received? And I feel like.
0: Yeah. What's going to happen? Tell me.
2: Yeah. You know, and Well, there was, it was funny. Like there was a day when I, I mean, I was watching television and I was on my laptop. And I was on my cell phone and if I'd had an iPad I probably would have been on that too, you know? And um and I think that like there's a way in which, you know, especially with like a lot of the, you know, the the, the great premium cable television shows that sort of uh I think were were minimum you know, influenced by the way that the wire um created narrative so that nothing is explained. Everything is, you, you have to pay attention in order to figure out how people are relate, how characters are related. So exposition, I don't think is as important as it used to be. I don't think readers crave exposition as much. Um, and so that puts a certain kind of pressure on you, but it also releases you from, from, from certain, you know, uh, descriptive expectations, perhaps. Um, I'm just trying to figure out, I mean, storytelling is, uh, is, is mutable. It's, 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 it's something that, um, has to change with the times, like how we tell stories, how we come to, to communicate, um, is, it's very, it's much more, I mean, I think that like, there's a lot of work that goes into creating a world, um, And, um, I think the pleasures, the classic pleasures of reading a novel for me, um, hold true as like, I, like I get as much pleasure from reading a book now as I did when I was, you know, 10 years old, but I do feel a certain amount of impatience as a reader. And I feel like I've read enough and I've witnessed enough narrative at this point that if I can anticipate you know, everything is sort of plot to me, and it's like if I can anticipate what's going to happen, and then that's what what happens. I I I feel really disappointed. <laughs> I don't want narrative to just affirm everything that our believe or know about the world. So I feel like there's a way that you know, um, continuing to subvert the, the 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 viewer's expectations. Like in in Game of Thrones, there's that wonderful moment in the first scene when the little boy gets pushed off, you know, gets pushed um, out of the tower and lands. And like, you think he's dead. And and that's the end of the first scene. So this little boy that you have sort of come to, who's kind of been your guide into this strange world, um, gets pushed off and maybe dead, you know, who knows? And, now, where do we go from here? Like, what what happens to, like, we, we just lost our guide into this world. Um, how do we continue on with the story? And I think that that's the kind of pressure a writer needs to put on themselves. Like, you can't rely on, you know, a sort of assumed kind of charm for your characters and you can't rely on the classic, you know, reversals or seductions in narrative. You have to... Anticipate something new that's going to help feed and advance the culture.
0: Do you, do you ever do you ever think about hybridized forms? I mean, are you think you think that the traditional, you know, model will just sustain itself over time?
2: I mean, I think that that's the, the, the hybridity, um, the lyric essay uh, is is something that. Uh, a sophisticated reader really, really gets excited around. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there was that big uh, spread on Ann Carson. Did you see it in like the New York Times Sunday magazine? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I didn't read it, but I I mean, I have, uh, I saw it in the Times, yeah.
2: Well, and it's funny too, because I mean, she's a brilliant woman, you know, who doesn't want to be interviewed. But, you know, it's like, if you don't want to be interviewed, you don't have to be interviewed. But she's somebody who I think has an ability to take the entire history of the lyric and you know the entire history of storytelling, you know, going back to the Greeks, and she can uh channel it into a new form. Um and uh so she's she's a brilliant, brilliant example of that, that, that kind of hybridity. Is it a poem, is it a novel, is it a play? You know why shouldn't it be all things? You know, um, and
0: what about like multimedia integration and stuff like that? Is that anything that excites you, or you, you look? Forward? Oh yeah,
2: oh yeah. I mean, I think like when it's great, when it's really well done. Um, you know, when you go, I always think about this. Like when when you do a reading, like there's something wonderful about just like the human voice just standing in front right. of a group of people and, and reading your story. But you know, in adventure readings, where you know there was music and there was video and and you know sort of delighting all of the senses and when it's done well i think it's it's quite quite extraordinary but um you know I, I think that i mean what are you excited about that's that that sort of speaks to this this hybridity
0: oh you know i i, I go back and forth i mean I, I think that like there's something sort of sacred about the yeah, I don't like to inter- I don't like interruptions. Like if all of a yeah. sudden there's like a video embedded into an ebook, like I feel like that's dicey territory for me or it's got to really be done well. You know what I'm saying? But like I could yeah. I can sort of see that coming. I really respond well to uh, like literary collage. I like books that work in short yeah. bursts. I like books that juxtapose in interesting ways. I like books that um are really compact but feel like but that read heavy if that makes sense. Yeah. Like all that kind of stuff is what interests me and I don't know if it's because I have a shorter attention span in the digital age or if it's because that's just what I like, but that's, that's where I'm at. And it's just interesting to me to think about, you know, like who even knows what we'll be reading on 20 years from now? You know, like, I oh, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll just still be, you know, it'll be paper books and those things will continue to, you know, to flourish, but it, it could be that it's an, it's a device that we haven't even fathomed yet. We don't know. You know.
2: Yeah, no. And, and, and that's, that's so exciting to me. I mean, I have... Um, in my short story collection, I have, you know, sort of classic, like, first-person narratives, um, and I also have, like, you know, these sort of, you know, slightly stranger um, stories. I have a story called Notes Toward an Anatomy of Pain that I originally published as a as a lyric essay, and um, I sort of... Changed it a little, so it's it's ultimately nonfiction, but I changed it a little bit for the the for the for the collection. Um, and when you look at that story, it's it's all of these little little pieces. It's all about the juxtaposition. And so I think that there's a way that you know a reader makes a narrative as they're reading, and there's a there's something very satisfying for a reader to make a narrative leap and to to have to puzzle out a connection um, and, you know, sort of try to figure out like, well, why is this photograph juxtaposed against, you know, I love Sebald's work, like about, against these words, yeah. like what is the relationship?
0: I read Austerlitz um, earlier this year. It's a depressing book, man. Jesus. It's yeah. such a heavy book, but like he uses photographs that could, that book especially is really interesting with the, uh, you know, the inclusion of photographs, which, yeah. you know, and I didn't, I, at first I didn't get it. You know, it's, I just, you start to read and you you're flipping through and then, you know, the the further you get in, the more they make sense, and it just yeah. gets, gets heavy.
2: <laughs> oh man! And it just but it it creates like its own language, and how like those images haunt the text. Um, I, I, I'm. You know, it's funny. Like when I was writing my novel, I thought in many ways like the most experimental thing I can do is to write a a traditional, like, like coming-of-age boarding school novel, like, set in the 80s, you know, that there's something actually kind of radical about embracing uh, traditional, you know, classic aspects of narrative. But I think that the, for the short story, it's such a, such a live form, such a, you know, it really warrants, um, you know, a kind of, a kind of ambition and courage and, and radical, uh, you know, um, gesture. And so I really love, you know, I love just writing something in, you know, small units, writing, um, a short story that has like little titled sections. Um, I have a story called assembling the troops that uh, sort of comes out of, a meeting i had with a with a young guy who uh was was in afghanistan and um you know there's like very little reason for for me to write about uh, being in the military on like the surface of things like you wouldn't think that i would you know like clearly i've never been in the military but uh, like my all of my uncles were at like the battle of the bulge and you know had this very sort of war-torn lives after that and one of my first teachers Um, was Tim O'Brien, and I took a class with him at the William Joyner Center for War and Social Consciousness, and it was Amber and a bunch of Vietnam vets. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably like the best workshop I ever had. And so on the surface of things, it it seems like an unlikely bit of subject matter, but it was something that I knew I could write about, and I knew I had to write about it in in a way that was radically different from all my other stories. So it's done in these little short um, sections that um, I actually use, like the, the huzzle form, the guzzle form in poetry, I actually sort of use a ghost of that for each section and they're titled. And um, so I think that you, you know, once you know how to tell, you know, a story in first person or third person, it never gets any easier just because you've told one story. doesn't mean you're going to tell another story. Um, but I do think that if you have a sense of command of point of view, or if you have a command of, of, you know, the elements of craft, subverting them in some way is, is like the greatest gift you can give yourself as a writer. And, um, and I think that you see more and more writers sort of moving toward, toward that, um, I think it's a good thing, I think it'll marry well with with film and television. So,
0: hmm. well, it's also fascinating, and uh, it's been super fun talking with you. I feel like we could keep going for like another hour, but uh, I have to go. I have somebody, I have workmen coming to my house to fix our ceiling, so I have to oh,
2: go. Oh wow, that's exciting! <laughs> yes, it's a thrill a minute
0: around here. So, uh, congratulations on the new collection. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me, and best of luck with everything uh, to come.
2: Well, it was a thrill. Thank you so much for uh, for 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 uh, this this discussion. Um, I love your podcast, and uh, it's, it's a great it's a great source of inspiration. While I'm warming up to write, I often listen to it and it fills me with hope. Oh, well, thanks so much.
0: <laughs> All right, folks, there you have it. That is Amber Dermont. Go get her books: the novel, The Starboard Sea. And the new story collection, Damage Control, both are available from St. Martin's Press. You can find Amber online at Facebook. She's also on the Twitter, where her handle is at Amber Dermont. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockStars.com. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast over at iTunes. Please do that. If you like the program and you listen regularly, it takes two minutes and it's a huge help. And uh, while you're at it, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And uh, get the David Lynch book, the audio book, uh, Catching the Big Fish. It's good, and it's available unabridged from Penguin Audio. You can get it over at Audible. You can listen to it on headphones as you are moving about your environment, and people will look at you with wonder and confusion. Please remember that Marlon Brando died of pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis, and that Paul Cezanne Cezanne, died at age 67 just a few days after being caught in a rainstorm while painting a landscape. That is it for now. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you once again for your kind attention. I will be back in just a couple of days on Wednesday with a new episode, another author, another conversation, another monologue.
1: Another attempt to uh, remove the suffocating rubber clown suit of negativity. (laughs)